These are the four questions that if we can answer these questions correctly, how do you work? How do you budget? How do you honor? How do you Sabbath? If we can answer these four questions correctly, then we can get our financial lives in order the way that God intended them to be. When the, when the economy slaps you in the face, how do you respond? When life happens, and even despite your best efforts, things start to go wrong for you financially, what do you do? I heard someone give a five-word strategy for this before. Dig in and dig out. Dig in and dig out. Now, hopefully we won't be doing any of that around here this week with the hurricane coming. Hopefully we're all going to be good and it's just going to be a little storm that passes us by. But, when, but it's a good five-word solution to a lot of our problems. Dig into it and start digging your way out of it. The first thing to do when you find yourself in a hole is what? Stop digging. <laughs> start making a decision that I've sunk as far as I'm going to go and I'm going to get out. But here's my question. Are we all left to our own selves and our own decisions when it comes to digging out of financial difficulty? Or is God intimately involved to help us out even in the practical matters of budgeting and economics and finance? And I know what some of you might be thinking, Pastor, I don't want to hear about economics and finance when I come to church. Just preach the word to me this morning. Just stick to the Bible. Well, did you know that in the Bible, if you added up all the verses that talked about money, that would outnumber all the verses that talk about faith and prayer combined. The Bible has a lot to say about economics and finance and budgeting and how we should work and how we should honor and how we should Sabbath and how we should look after and take care of the blessings that God gives to us. So if you really want me to stick to the Bible, most weeks I'll be preaching about finance and economics. I'm not going to preach about it most weeks. But we're going to take a look over these few weeks about these four questions. We want to dig into this and see how God's intimately involved in helping us in the practical matters of finance. So let's let's go after that first question today, how you work. Turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, we're going to be in two chapters of the Bible this morning. Chapter Leviticus chapter 18 and also Leviticus chapter 19. We're going to start in chapter 18, verse 1. Now Leviticus is the third book of the Bible, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus is God providing laws, guidelines, fences, so to speak, that give clear understanding and practical ways of our life. The book of Leviticus talks about, it talks about ways to diet. It talks about ways to operate in your relationships. It talks about how to develop personal ethics for your life. It also talks about how to worship God in the matters of sacrifice and and the worship. It also talks about how we work and how we budget, how we rest, and how we finance. It's the practical things. And God says, if you stay inside the boundaries and the guidelines I set up for you, you'll have life and the life you've always wanted. So just a little bit of a background. Again, Leviticus is one of the first five books of the Bible. We call those five books the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You know the next two? Numbers and Deuteronomy. I struggled with that ever since I was a kid. Deuteronomy. As a kid, I said Deuteronomy. So it's Deuteronomy. Those are the first five books of the Bible. These form the, the foundation for Judaism and also for Christianity. And if you really don't understand the first five books of the Bible, you can't understand the depth of what Christianity is. You, you, you couldn't if you don't understand the first five books. So Genesis, of course, is the first book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God existed. He pre-existed. He's always existed. God created the earth. He created man. And man and God had a wonderful relationship. God created us in his image. But man messed it up. We went outside of God's 
guidelines. We went outside of his boundaries and we tarnished that relationship through sin. So God established a covenant with Abraham and through Abraham he identified a specific group of people that he would again use as a, as a representation of the way he always intended things to be. In the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, we find this group of people now called Israel and the Israelites, we find them in captivity as slaves in bondage to Egypt. And God comes in, he rescues them, he rescues his people, he delivers them and he establishes himself as their ruler. Then we move into the third book, which is Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, this is where God kind of sets up his contract, so to speak. Um, It's kind of like God drawing a line in the sand and saying, you're my people and I love you. And I'm going to establish guidelines and boundaries. And if you'll simply stay within the guidelines and the boundaries for how to live these simple, practical guidelines, then you'll have life and favor and I can bless you. And if you step outside of those things, I can't bless you. There can't be favor. And so in the book of Leviticus, we see things like we do. We read things like we do in Leviticus chapter 18. Verses 1 through 4. He says, I love you enough to tell you what the boundaries actually are. And here's one of the things he says. The Lord says to Moses, verse 2 of chapter 18, I'm reading. Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. I am the Lord your God. So do not act like the people in Egypt where you used to live. Or don't act like the people in Canaan where I'm taking you. You must not imitate their way of life. You must instead, he says, you must, you must obey all my regulations and be careful to obey my decrees because I'm the Lord your God. If you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find what? You will find what? If you obey my decrees and regulations, you will find life through them. I am the Lord your God. So how do we find life? Through obeying His regulations. It's a simple formula, friends. If we obey the law, if we obey what God says to us in the Bible, if we live the way God says to live, we'll find life. Isn't that simple? So the inverse must also be true. If I choose not to obey God, if I choose to disregard the boundaries and the fences, if I choose to live life the way I see fit, will I find life? If we obey his rules and regulations, we find life. It's very simple. A theist, this is not in your notes, a theist is a person who believes that there is one God. The Israelites were theists. I think most of us in the room probably are theists. An atheist is a person who doesn't believe that God exists. Now, the Egyptians were atheists. And what God said to the Israelites was, follow what I am saying to do. Live the life of a theist. Don't be like the Egyptians. Where you used to live. They don't believe in me. And they don't live right. Don't be like the Canaanites. Where I'm taking you to live. They're atheists. They don't believe in me either. And they don't live right. What he's telling them to do is live like a theist. In a world filled with atheists. Friend, God is still saying that to every one of us that would come after him. We need to live lives as though we are ruled by the King of kings and Lord of lords and do things his way, not the way the world tells us to do because they live like there is no God. The word that God gave in Leviticus is every bit applicable to us today as it was 3,500 some odd years ago. Then we see things again like we see in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. God gets more specific 
The Lord also said to Moses, give the following instructions to the entire community of Israel. You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Here's what God did. He established a theocracy. Sounds similar to democracy, but the first couple letters, the prefix on the word is different. He established a theocracy. That is a government on earth where God stands alone as supreme ruler and king. And he's saying, I am the king and you, my people of Israel, are my subjects. Those of us who follow after Jesus now in the New Testament, God, we kind of think of God as our father and we as his children. It's still a theocracy. We live under the rule of God. We submit to his rules. If you want to be in the kingdom, you've got to do things the way the king says. Amen. It makes sense to you. Okay. So the Israelites became a subject. We now follow this. What God was doing here was he was building kind of a fence of his favor in the book of Leviticus. He was building a fence. Now, this fence totally reminds me of the, it brings back great memories. My grandmother, who lives in Pennsylvania, has a white picket fence around her house. And I just have so many great memories of being at grandma's house over the summer and playing. And I was not allowed to go outside of the fence. I could play anywhere outside that was inside the fence. And all would be good at grandma's house. But when the curiosity got better of me, and I started going outside the fence. And one time I tried to climb over the fence before I realized it was too heavy to try to do that. And broke said fence. Um, Things were not well for me. And what God is saying is, I am going to build with you, my people, a fence. I will give you rules and regulations to live by, and I am your God. And if you will simply follow the rules and regulations, you'll find life, and I'll bless you. Inside the fence is favor and life. Outside the fence is not favor and death. Inside the fence is blessing. Outside the fence, cursing. Inside the fence, there's feasting. Outside the fence, there's famine. Now, thank God that he told us what the fence was and didn't leave us wandering through life, wondering how should I live, how should I budget, how should I finance, how should I speak, how should I diet, how should I treat people that I like, how should I treat people that I don't like. He tells us through the Bible Where the fence is. And all he's saying is if you'll stay just simply inside the fence. And there's plenty of room in here. If you'll stay inside the fence of my favor, things will be good. But then we go to the fourth book of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. What's that next one? Numbers. And you know what the book of Numbers is? The Israelites started examining the fence and deciding which fences they liked. And which fences they didn't like so much. And we see the Israelites in the book of Numbers saying, I don't like this fence. And they started going around God's guidelines and provisions as though they weren't there and living life the way that they felt they wanted to do it. Picking and choosing which of God's fences and laws and regulations they obeyed and didn't obey. And what happened was things went very wrong for them very fast. God stopped blessing them. They didn't enter into the promised land that God promised. They never made it there. They got stuck in the wilderness, and it was a miserable 40 years for them. Moses died, and then we get to the book of Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy means to do again, to try again. To repeat. And God raises up another generation 40 years later. And that generation said, you know what? We want to get back behind the fence again. And that generation of people in the book of Deuteronomy said, we want to do things God's way. We're tired of wandering around in the land of famine and being miserable and not living the life God intended. They got back behind the fence and started living God's way. And Joshua stepped up at the end of Deuteronomy and led the people into the promised land. And God blessed them generously. 
And that's the invitation to us, my friends. The Bible speaks very practically to these things. We can learn a lot by watching the patterns of the Israelites. God still has fences today for us to help us determine how we should live and what we should do. It gives us some practical insights in the book of Leviticus as to how we should work. So I want to read to you from, from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 23 through 25. Let's get into this how do you work stuff. Let's unpack this a little bit. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 23 to 25. God sets this up for us and talks to us about specific things. He talks to us about what an economic cycle is. Let's read Leviticus chapter 19, verses 23 through 25 says this. When you enter the land and plant fruit trees, leave the fruit unharvested for the first three years and consider it forbidden. Do not eat it. Should we eat it? No. Don't eat it. In the fourth year, the entire crop must be consecrated to the Lord as a celebration of praise. Finally, in the fifth year, you may eat the fruit. And here's a great sentence. Please put your eyes on this sentence. If you follow this pattern, your harvest will what? Increase. Increase. In other words, if you follow God's rules and treat your work and your harvest and your crops according to the way I'm telling you, your harvest will increase. I am the Lord your God. God's giving you an understanding of the economic cycle and how you can increase your harvest. Increase means to get ahead. This is what we all want. I want my harvest, my finances, my economics to increase. Why is it? Why is it that sometimes, guys, we read the Bible and we read about these fences God puts up to us when it comes to our economics and we think that God's trying to take away from us? Well, God must be putting up parameters and guidelines and rules to keep me poor, to keep me from getting ahead, to rob me of me. Why do we read it that way? The Bible says quite the contrary. God's saying, listen, I designed economics. I designed the way that it works. I'm going to give you clues and cues how to make your personal economics and finance increase. And here's how you do it. You stay inside this fence. And one of the things that he wants us to do is to understand the economic cycle. Now, what is an economic cycle? It's right here for us. It really has three components. Here's what an economic cycle is. It consists of three words. So, grow, And harvest. Sow, grow, harvest. Let's say this together. Not too tough. Sow, grow, harvest. Now see, this is exciting stuff to me. This is the type of stuff that changed my life. This is the type of stuff that would change your life. Sow, grow, harvest. And what do we do when we harvest? We take some of the seed from the harvest and we bring it back to sow. And we take some of that seed and we plant it. What do we do again? We sow grow, and harvest. Now, sowing, um, not really my favorite part. Sowing involves two things. This is kind of where we plant and plow. How many gardeners do we have in the room? Bless you. I have unsuccessfully attempted gardening for four years, and I will not be doing it for a fifth. But the whole economic cycle that God put out for the Israelites began with this. He said, when you enter the land, the first thing I want you to do is plant fruit trees, right? Now now look at it this way. God could have done this differently. 
He could have said, listen, when you enter the land, the trees will already be grown, fruits on it. Just go pick the fruit and enjoy it. That's not the way that he designed it to work. He said, the first thing is you're going to have to plant some fruit, fruit trees, and this involves plowing and planting. In life, this, but it's not just about agriculture, guys. This is true of every business, of every part of our economics, of, of our growing and developing in life and providing for ourselves and our families. It begins with something we like to call hard work. This is where we roll up our sleeves and we work, and we work hard. You cannot skip this if you want to harvest. It begins with planting and plowing and hard work and not seeing results from it the way that you want for a while. But it involves that. Then you move from sowing into growing, which we kind of think of involving weeds and weight. Oh, goody. Weeding and waiting. My least favorite chore when I grew up was when my dad said, go outside and pull the weeds out of the garden. That was just miserable. How many in the room do not like weeding and waiting? Thank you for your honesty. I don't like waiting. I had to go this week to get my new tags for my cars that, you know, we moved from Georgia to Maryland. I spent 4.5 hours sitting on a metal bench waiting for them to call C-73. When I sat down, they were on C-19 and there were four cubicles open. It was a bad day, you know. I don't like waiting. God said to the Israelites, after you plow and plant, what? don't eat anything for three years. Yeah. Now, agriculture people would understand what God was saying. You need to let the root system on those trees develop first. You need to let the limbs grow and be strong enough. You need to not take the fruit that's coming off of the tree in that first three years. It's not ready yet. It's not economically mature. It's not ready for you to eat and consume. So don't shortcut the process. Don't take it too early and spend it or eat it before that it's time for you to have it. But you have to wait until it has time to grow and to mature before you get to harvest. Which is all about reaping and reward. We love harvest. Harvest is great. But you can't skip to harvest. There's sowing and growing. And this is true in all of business and all of life and all of economics. Let me speak to our teenagers and our 20-somethings here for just a moment. When you were in your childhood years and your elementary years and into your high school years, some of you even into your young adult and college and career years, we, your parents and society, were sowing into you. You were not an asset yet. You are, as my friends at the IRS would say, you were a liability at that point. But we were sowing into you. We were helping you get an education. We were teaching you morals and ethics. We were teaching you about decision making. You weren't contributing much in terms of the economic growth of the household other than maybe a few deductions on our taxes here and there. There is a season of your life where you're in this sow stage and we were sowing into you. And we hope and pray to dear God Almighty that at some point you'll move into the grow or at least the go stage. This is when 
you start to get out on your own and you start to work and you start to make decisions and you start to explore who you are and whose you are and what are you going to do with your hands and your life. And you start trying to figure out all the seeds that have been planted into you. How are they going to grow and develop? How are you going to... And it involves a lot of weeding and a lot of waiting, doesn't it? This is why when you move out on your own and you're in your so-to-grow stage, you can't live like your parents and grandparents yet because they should be in their harvest stage. But a lot of us want to shortcut that process and skip right to harvest. We haven't worked for it yet. We haven't figured it all out, but everybody else older than us has it, and we need to have it right away, especially if Visa will let us. We don't want to work our way up. We don't want to roll up our sleeves. But God put together this economic cycle that we can't break. It's so grow harvest. Now let me ask you a question. Which of these three is your favorite? Harvest, right? Oh, harvest is fun. I love me some harvest. That's Georgia talk. But I love harvest. That's reaping and reward. And in our love of harvest, this is where we quickly get off track, guys. Because instead of so grow harvest, what happens is we say, I don't want it to be so grow harvest. I want it to be harvest. And what do you think comes next? Harvest. And what do we finish it up with? Harvest. Yeah. But guys, this is not the economic cycle that God put in place, did he? And here's the danger. If we fall so in love with harvest, we start becoming consumed with consuming as consumers. We start wanting to have before we even have the money to pay for it. We start wanting to shortcut and get around things that we really should have to work hard for and thinking that if we don't get the harvest we want, somebody owes us one. And let me tell you what happens to a people in a nation who start worshiping harvest, harvest, harvest. They will eventually owe more than they make And they will put themselves and their whole nation into bankruptcy. And I wonder if this is not what's happening in our country. Harvest, harvest, harvest. There's a danger of skipping the steps in the economic cycle that God put into play. Some of them aren't all that fun. But the idea was that God said, listen, for the first three years that you start to see some fruit growing, don't eat it yet. Don't shortcut the cycle. Trust me, the fourth year you'll see a harvest. And guess what? The first fruits of your harvest, what do we get to do with those according to Leviticus? God says, they're consecrated to me as holy. You bring those as an offering to me. The first, the first fruits that you harvest, you bring them to me because I'm your God. I am responsible for the seed and the growth and the tree. That's, that's something I gifted you with. He says, but then on year five, Things are going to be good for you because now that tree can do everything you always wanted it to do. You can live the life you wanted to do if you'll just stay within the fence. It's my economic cycle. But we're in danger, especially in this country, of falling in love with harvest, harvest, harvest. It puts us in a bad spot. I wonder if it leads us to things in in a little video clip that I saw that was kind of humorous. Some Some classic and clean Saturday Night Live. Julie, can we go ahead and roll that clip? See if this sounds familiar to any discussions you've ever had. I just can't get these numbers to add up. It's like we're never going to get out of this hole. Credit card debt, does it ever end? (laughs) Maybe I can help. We sure could use it. 
We've tried debt consolidation companies. We've even taken out loans to help make payments. Well, you're not the only ones. Did you know millions of Americans live with debt they cannot control? That's why I developed this unique new program for managing your debt. It's called Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. Oh, let me see that. If you don't have any money, you should not buy anything. Hmm, sounds interesting. Sounds confusing. I don't know, honey. This makes a lot of sense. There's a whole section here on how to buy expensive things using money you save. Give me that. And where would you get this saved money? I tell you where and how in Chapter 3. Okay, but what if I want something but I don't have any money? You don't buy it. Well, let's say I don't have enough money to buy something. Should I buy it anyway? No. Now I'm really confused. It's a little confusing at first. Well, what if you have the money? Can you buy something? Yes. Now take the money away. Same story? Nope. You shouldn't buy stuff when you don't have the money. I think I got it. I buy something I want and then hope that I can pay for it, right? <laughs> no. You make sure you have money, then you buy it. Oh, then you buy it. But shouldn't you buy it before you have the money? No. Why not? It's in the book. It's only one page long. <laughs> the advice is priceless, and the book is free. Wow, I like the sound of that. Yeah, we can put it on our credit card. <laughs> so get out of debt now. Write for your free copy of Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. And if you order now, you'll also receive Seriously. If you don't have the money, don't buy it. Along with a 12-month subscription to Stop Buying Stuff magazine. So order today. Ever have those conversations or know someone who did? <laughs> you know, the tragedy is, is that we get swept up in this idea of have it now, have it now, have it now. Don't work for it. You know, when I was 18 and I went off to college, my second day on campus... I was walking into the cafeteria, and there was a big, uh, a big table set up right outside the cafeteria, all us freshmen walking through there. And it was a credit card company offering those of us who didn't have jobs and had no money the opportunity to a credit card. And the, one of the ways they were pitching it to us was, you know, you might need to go out and buy things that you don't have the money for, and now you can go get it. And you know, they signed up so many people because they were touching on a dysfunction that we had inside of us that says, I'm 18 and I don't have a lot of money or stuff yet, and I don't want to work for it or I can't work for it. I want to have it now. And they gave us a means to an end. Friends, you know what happens when we get out from behind God's fence of the economic cycle? If we just ignore this and say, I don't feel like working hard, I want to skip over that step. Or I don't want to wait. I've worked hard, but I haven't gotten the harvest I feel like I should have. I don't want to wait. I don't want to weed. I just want harvest, harvest, harvest. We set ourselves up to run over all kinds of other of God's fences, like lying and cheating and stealing and robbing. If we ignore God's economic cycle, we start taking for ourselves things that do not belong to us or asking people to give us things that we do not deserve and we haven't earned. It's why people cheat on tests. They want a shortcut around working hard and studying and seeing a harvest from it. They want to get ahead. And friend, if you're cheating on tests to get ahead, let me tell you, when you really do have to work for it, you'll produce less because you shortcutted God's economic cycle. It's what happens when we, when we go to work and we ask our employer to pay us for more hours than we actually worked. 
Or we bill a customer for more services than we actually provided. Or we have to be reimbursed for things that we really shouldn't be reimbursed for. We think somehow in our mind that that's the way for me to get ahead because all it is is about the harvest, harvest, harvest. And we jump over God's fence and we ignore it. And then God can do nothing to bless us. Friend, that's not the way that God says we should work. God says His cycle of working is so grow harvest. Not skipping the cycle, not inventing what feels good to us, but honoring that sow, grow, harvest that he put together. We get outraged by theft, by time theft. We see people steal things. There are many Christians that are ethically outraged by theft. But I wonder what God thinks of us who call ourselves Christ followers when it comes time for us to give. What belongs to God, what he says is mine, the portion of what he, he said, this is mine. And we keep it for ourselves and we don't give it. Is that any different? Is that theft any different than someone taking something from you that doesn't belong to them? Here's the sad thing. The majority of us are outside of God's fence when it comes to our personal economics. And we keep for ourselves that harvest that God said that belongs to me. We keep for ourselves because we honestly believe that keeping it for ourselves will help us get ahead. That's the tragedy. Guys, it's not about the bottom line number of the church. It's about you living inside the fence of God's favor so he can bless you the way that he wants to bless you and let you live your life with the favor that he wants to have on you. It's getting behind that fence. So we close with this. What is an economic theist? I know some of you are thinking there's so much more we could talk about when it comes to work. There is. This is just a small capsule. I hope you'll do some digging this week on your own to maybe get at the root of some. So what is an economic theist? It's a person who believes God. God is God and acknowledges that God governs their economics and personal finances. An economic theist is a person who believes God is really who he says that he is and I choose to follow him. Friend, if you haven't made that decision this morning, I'm not asking you to be an economic theist. It would make no sense to you. If you've not decided to follow God as you, your ruler and Lord, some of these things might just seem like just a bunch of empty rules and eg- regulations. God doesn't want us to just be economic theists and not live like, not follow after him and accept his plan of salvation. But an economic theist is somebody who says, God is God. I am his child. He is my father. He invented economics. And I will make all of my decisions about my economics and finances according to the rules and the guidelines that God establishes. How I work, I'm going to do it God's way. How I honor, I'm going to do it God's way. God tells me how to budget, and I budget accordingly. God tells me how to Sabbath, and I do it accordingly. An economic theist realizes every single one of my financial gifts, my ability to work, my income, all that I have are gifts from God. Guess what? God doesn't have an accounting, he doesn't have a routing number and a checking account. He doesn't. Maybe, or maybe he does, and I just don't have any access to it. I don't have the PIN number or whatever it is. God does, God very rare, I've never known a time where God just dropped a check in my mailbox. Maybe God had everything to do with me getting paid or me getting, but God doesn't send me money. He gives me abilities and creative areas to express. He gives me the ability to work and to earn and to take care of finances. Everything I have is a gift from God. An economic theist says money is not God. I can enjoy it, a little of it or a lot of it. But I can, whether I have a little or a lot, I will always have a satisfied mind. And here's something that's not in your notes, but I, I did a little extra digging. An economic theist also understands why I'm supposed to work. Okay? Um, why, why do I actually go to work? Well, one is out of necessity. 
Because 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, those unwilling, not unable, but those unwilling to work will not get to eat. I go to work, guys, because I have to. I've got a mortgage. I've got two right now until my house sells in Georgia, which is going to happen soon in the name of Jesus. I've got a family. We've got bills. We've got to eat. I go to work to earn so I can take care of my family. There's a necessity, says the Bible, for me, for me to work. Now, people who have done this correctly might say, well, I don't work anymore. I've retired because you know what I did? I went through a season of sow, grow, harvest, and I planted and sow, grow, harvest, and all the way along, I was putting money away so that even when the sowing and the growing slowed down, I didn't have to deplete my harvest. I was smart. I was wise. And now I don't have to work because I've made decisions so that I wouldn't get to a place where I would have my harvest depleted. There's a second reason why I work as a Christian. I work because of, it's a part of my identity. 1 Peter 4.10 says, God has given each of us a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Another reason why I go to work is because it's part of the way that God designed me to be most fulfilled. Now, my wife right now goes to work at home as a stay-at-home mom with my son. She worked in the public school system for 12 years, and we spent... Uh, when we got pregnant, we started putting money aside so that we could at least have a, a, a season where Kendra could stay home with Chase. I don't mean to suggest for a moment that if you're staying home or if you, I'm not talking about going and punching a time card, one of the reasons, that's a big part of her identity. And we're not embarrassed or ashamed that she stays home with Chase. Any of you that have ever stayed home with a child, it's not sitting around watching Lifetime eating bonbons. That's not how it works. It's your son pulling the cable cord out of the back of the TV and trying to get into the bonbons. It just doesn't work out. But you know it's part of her identity. You know part of the reason why I love what I do? Because God wired me to love being a pastor. It's part of my identity, says the Bible. God gave me gifts so that when I match that gift with a way to earn and provide and sow and grow and harvest, life has fulfillment for me. You know there's so many miserable people who are successful and make a lot of money and they hate their job. Maybe they're not doing what God put in their heart when they were born to do, and it's misery. I love a God that says, I know you and I'll create you in a specific way. And when you can find that overlap between what you love and what you're passionate about and what I've gifted you to do with a way to provide for your family, that life doesn't seem so miserable. Wouldn't you like to be in that stream of the way that God created us to be? Another reason that, that I go to work is it's part of my witness. It's part of my ministry. I love this thing that Paul writes in First Thessalonians. He says, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business. We could preach just on that, couldn't we? The Bible says, mind your own business. <laughs> oh, I love it. How many problems would we avoid if we just minded our own business? Just mind your own business. Write this verse down, hand it to the person that annoys you tomorrow. Listen, the Bible says, mind your own business. He says, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands just as we, the disciples, instructed you, new Christians, before. Then people who are not Christians will respect the way you live and see that you will not need to depend on others. You know why I go to work? So that people who don't know Jesus can see how hard I work and how I take care of my family, what kind of integrity that I have, and they will respect my God even though they don't serve Him. When I worked selling cars, I've never been more scrutinized by my coworkers for how I worked than then. They knew I was a Christian. I was the only Christian of 21 salespeople. They watched everything I did. If I came late, it, it made an impression upon their thought of Christians. If I was there early, it changed the way they thought. Did I take shortcuts? Did I lie to get a deal done? 
Did I steal one of their customers that could be a quick buck for me? Did I chase the dollar? Or did I work in such a way that I could give good PR and an accurate representation of who God was? Part of the reason we work, guys, is because we work shoulder to shoulder with people who need to find God. And maybe one of the ways they find God is by seeing something in your life that they find admirable. Amen? That's one of the reasons the Bible says we work. And the last reason I suggest is me working allows me to be generous. If I stop going to work... A lot of the needs I'd like to meet and a lot of the needs I want to meet require money. My ability to meet other people's needs and to be as generous as I'd like to be is is pretty stunted. Here's what the Bible says in Acts chapter 10 verse 35. Um, It says, And I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. How do I help people in need? You work hard. Pastor, I want to meet more needs. Well, let's work hard to do it. That's one of the reasons I get up and go to work, not just to meet my needs, but so that I can take and meet other people's needs. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Friends, one of the reasons we're here at Echo is to meet needs in this community, period. You know why we want to grow? Not so that we can have big conferences and tell them how we did it at Echo. Not so we can have a TV show. Not so we can talk about the Echo store. You know why we want to grow? Because there's more needs we need to meet. There's more needs in this community than we can meet as a group right now. We need more disciples. We need more people. I'm not trying to pull people out of other churches that are connected there. That's the last place I'm going to go. I want to go to people who are disconnected from God, who don't have a church, who need to find a relationship with Jesus. Bring them on board. Introduce them to Jesus. Help them find a relationship with him. And then give them an opportunity to help us meet more needs. That's one of the reasons why we work hard. It's one of the reasons why we store up in our harvest so that it's not just about meeting our needs. So many of the needs that need to be met require resourcing. It's not just always time. That's a part of it. But I know that if I go to work and I work hard, one of the reasons I get up is not just for my own needs, but so I can give to missions. I can give to the fire Bibles. I can buy some gift cards for the teachers at Perry Hall High School that need it. If my neighbors need groceries, I can help with that. It's one of the reasons why I work hard. It's one of the reasons God wants his followers to work hard. It's part of our identity. It's the ability to be generous. It's part of the way that he wired us to be happy. It's out of necessity to be generous. So what is an economic atheist as we close? An economic atheist is a person who says there's no God over my finances. Some of us said, hey, I'm not, that word atheist, oh, I'm definitely not an atheist. I believe in God. It's not what an economic atheist talks about. Do you believe there's a God over your finances? Or do you pick and choose the things that God is God over? See, that's what the Israelites did in Numbers. They said, well, God can be God over our food, but not over our worship. Not over the way that we do marriage. Maybe not over the way that we do our sacrifices. We like this rule. We like that rule, but we don't like these others. Friends, let me be very honest with you this morning and very bold with you. We don't come to God and make conditions about what Christianity looks like. That's not the way it works. We don't pick which laws we like and which we don't. That's coming to God and dictating to the king the way the law is going to work out, and that's not the way that it is. I'm in no position to tell God the way that the kingdom ought to operate. When I came to God, I said, you are my Lord and my Savior. That means I voluntarily submit to you being the king and ruler over my life. If you've got something to say about the conversations that I have, then I'm going to line up with it. If you have a problem with the language I use, then I'm going to change it. If you have, if God, if there's a way I'm to treat my wife that I'm not doing it, then I'm going to change because you're the king. If you have a way that you want me to work differently than I'm working, then I'm going to change. And if it comes down to my economics and my budgeting, you're God over that too. And if we're going to follow God, it's not an either or, it's an, it's a, it's a, it's an everything. We're all in. I've heard so many people make an appeal, come follow Jesus. And just give him the parts that you want. 
Look, when I came to Jesus, I was a mess. And I used to say, you know, I've got to get ready to give up all these other things first. He needs me to give up this and that issue. And I've got to get this straightened out. And that's right. Here's what I found out. God wasn't, he, he just wanted me to come to him. Because without him, I couldn't get all that stuff straightened out. I needed him first to get those other things straightened out. You might be thinking, my economics are a mess. I guess I need to get them cleaned up before I can come to Jesus. No, friend, come to Jesus and let him help you work on those other things. Because if you could do it independent of him, we wouldn't need him. If you could get your marriage straightened up outside of Jesus, what do we need Jesus for? Friend, somebody told me once, and it's not in the Bible. It was just a saying that stuck with me. God cleans his fish after he catches them. I'm still in the process of being cleaned. I need a lot of work. My wife has just been perfect since birth. Me, on the other hand, it has been a lifelong endeavor for God. But an economic atheist is one who says there is no God over my finances. I govern them. I decide how I work. I decide how I budget. I decide how I give. I decide how I honor. I decide how I Sabbath. I want to leave this thought with you. If you talk and pray like a theist, but you handle your money and finances like an atheist, then God's powerless. Pastor, did you just say that we render God powerless? No, let me be more exact with what that statement means. If I live and talk the language of one who believes in God, I pray, I love Jesus, bless his name, yea, God. But I handle my money and my finances like there is no God over my finances. Then God is unable and is not currently working to bless me and bring me into the favor that he wants for me. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have any power, but I have just stepped outside of the fence where his favor is. So here's what we want to do over these next few weeks together. Next week, we're going to take a one week sabbatical from our economic atheist series. Next week, we're going to talk about what God's doing all over the world. We're going to talk about how you start showing God to people that you live near that don't know him, that you may not even like. We've got a guy coming who has spent a lot of his life in Spain reaching out to the Muslim people. And here's what he says. He says, I found it's a lot less about me being able to argue them to Jesus or debunk. It's about loving people and meeting their needs. I said, will you please come to Echo because we're all about that. We're trying to reach three surrounding communities here in, in Perry Hall and White Marsh and Nottingham. Not necessarily by going out and arguing people theologically into heaven. Though it's important to know the Bible and understand and defend what we believe. We're trying to love people and meet their needs by doing movies in the park and loving on the teachers and getting groceries for people who need. Will you just come and help us understand how that is a powerful way to lead people to Jesus? We're going to talk about that next week. But here's, here's where I want to leave us. You know, the majority, not the minority of us who call Jesus our Lord are outside of God's favor when it comes to our economics and finances. We pray like theists, but we live like economic atheists. And so we just designed this series to invite you back into the fence of God's favor. So I just want you to consider these questions that we leave. Will you use this series to come back inside of the fence of God's favor if you're outside of it? Will you come back over the next few weeks and get the good, solid teaching that we're going to open up to you in the Bible? Will you take it home and think about it? Will you pray about it? Will you go open the Bible and read these verses again for yourself without me speaking in your ear and just ask God, God, help me directly understand through your Holy Spirit what you're trying to say to us, say to me. God, when it comes to my work, I don't want to shortcut the process. Show me in my own life where maybe I've gotten wrapped up in harvest, 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 and I'm skipping the steps. Or maybe I'm stuck somewhere, and I just need you to encourage me that if I keep weeding and keep waiting and keep sowing, there's going to come a day when I will be able to harvest and reap that reward that you have for me. Will you take an economic stand for yourself or for your family, for your life in this series? 
For those of you that already live these things, you're saying, Pastor, you're preaching to the choir. Will you be here and will you say amen and nod your head at the appropriate places so people understand that it's not just the pastor up here by himself preaching some newfangled theology, but this is something that we actually believe and that we put to work in our own lives. I hear testimony after testimony after testimony of how God's worked in people's finances. But I will tell you, I've seen marriages destroyed in 15 years of ministry, more than I like to talk about because of finance. I've seen people who say I'm working as hard as hard as I can thinking I'm putting my family and myself forward. I'm just moving backwards. You know why it wasn't because they weren't working hard. It's because they got outside the fence in some places. We're not here to beat you over the head. I'm not here to try and make you feel bad. I am here, though, to try and be a conduit of the Holy Spirit because I believe in God's best for you. And how can you get there if these things are right there in the Bible and we don't talk about them? And sometimes when we're confronted with things that we're not doing right, we're not doing as well as we could, it feels a little rough. And I know some of that gets projected on me. I'm okay, I'll sleep tonight. At the end of the day, I'm much more concerned about God's best for you than I am whether you like me or not. I want to be an accurate representation of what's in the Bible. My wife and I have to go back to this stuff regularly. We've made good choices in our life. But the only reason we've been able to make good choices is through these things. But over the weeks, I'll tell you about some bad choices that we made. And how God had to help us learn from those things and keep moving forward. Okay. But my hope for you is that you'll just see these fences as good things. As boundaries for us to live inside of for God's favor. Let me pray over you and then we'll conclude with our offering and and we'll dismiss in just a moment. Heavenly Father, in a moment of just humbling ourselves before you, we invite your conviction into our lives. If there's areas where we as your followers have said we, we we think we're theists, but maybe we're living in a way that we're economic atheists. And God, I believe with all my heart that those of us who are shortcutting the economic cycle We've already felt this morning an awareness of where we're, we're shortcutting your process. Here's what we need now, God. We need you to give us practical insight on how we make some corrective measures for the things we're aware of, for the areas where we've cheated, where we've gotten ahead. Maybe we spend it, we spend it before we had it. Or perhaps we've, we've cheated to get ahead. We've, we've cooked the books, so to speak, to get more money than we deserved. We lied on our taxes to get more money back or not pay as much because we really thought somehow that that would help us get ahead. We repent of that this morning. Please forgive us. But God, now we might find ourselves at a place where we need to dig in and dig out. And now we need practical instructions. One thing for us to say, God, please forgive me. But we don't want to just stay there. We want to get forward and be forward. So I pray that you creatively and personally and uniquely drop truth into the hearts of your followers this morning. And let me also say this, friends, with every head bowed and every eye closed, you might be here this morning saying, Pastor, I, let's forget about economics for a second. I'm not even inside the God's, fence of God's favor in my own life. I see all my issues. I see all my problems. I see all my struggles. But I heard you talk about getting behind the fence of God's favor is the place where I will find life as I always wished I could have it. I just want to encourage you this morning. It's not about you saying, I'm going to give up this or that or the other thing. That's not where it starts. It starts by you saying, I recognize I'm outside of God's fence of favor. And I want to come inside the fence and have a relationship with God. That's where it starts. And if that's the step you want to take this morning, you can pray a prayer that sounds something like this. Dear Jesus, I know that I've sinned against you. I've disobeyed you. I've done my own thing. I've not paid attention to all your fences and guidelines. But today I want to stop that. And I want to move inside the fence of your, of your favor. I want to live my life according to the ethics and the relationships and worship and and all the other things. I want to make my life line up with the way that you said 
that if I just followed your guidelines, I'd live the life that you always intended for me to live. That's what I want. So God, will you forgive me for my sins? Jesus, will you come into my life and change me today? And will you start getting me on that road towards moving, towards living the life that I always wanted to live? I will follow your rules, not just the ones that I like, but all of them. I'll make it an effort to be informed. I'll read my Bible. I'll ask questions. I'll connect with people who are more mature spiritually than I am. But those are the things that I want. Thank you for making it available to me and for free at that. In your precious name, we all pray. Amen. Amen. If you made that decision this morning, before you leave today, Take that Connect card that you have. Fill out that contact information on the front. And there's a little part where you can write, I made a decision to follow Jesus today. Or, I recommitted my life. At some point in my life, I made a decision to follow Jesus. I wandered and did my own thing. And today, I'm, I'm making a new start. Will you fill that out for us? And when the offering basket comes by in a moment, will you drop that in there? Those go directly to me. That is the high point of my week. You know, every week since September 9th, since we came back after Labor Day, every single week here at Echo, at least one adult has made a decision to follow Jesus for the first time. We've had 13 people that have gotten saved over that time. And what's more, of those 13, 11 of them are still part of our Echo family. The only two who are not were out-of-state guests that were here for one day, and we've been able to help. So, so God's doing an amazing thing here. So you're not alone in that decision. You're not alone in that decision this morning. Don't feel like it's just you. There's others that are just like you that are trying to figure out where their life fits in with God and all this. And every week someone's coming to know Jesus. That thrills my heart. You fast forward that six months, a year, two years, we're going to start changing a community here. And I'm really looking forward to that. We're going to give you an opportunity this morning to worship God in your giving. In just a moment, the ushers are come. They'll pass a bucket up and down the aisles. And, and guys, I just want to say thank you so much. It's enabling us to do so much. Your generosity is enabling us to do so many things in this community. You know, in just a couple weeks, we're going to have a big breakfast for these teachers. We're going to be able to go in there and tell 150 teachers at Perry Hall High School how much we love them. And again, we can't do those things without your generosity, without you taking part of the harvest that God's entrusted you with and say, I'm going to take part of that. And I'm going to sow it back into God's kingdom. Not necessarily so that it comes back in money to me, but so that that's the thing I'm saying in God's kingdom grows and it produces a harvest of more people coming to know Jesus like I know him. And I just want to say thank you for doing that. It means so much to us, us and so much to our community. So as our ushers come, we're going to roll a video, I believe, that's going to tell you a little bit about the special offering we're receiving next week for the Fire Bible. So if you just direct your attention to the screen, it's just a couple minutes, and I'll come up and dismiss us. You can go ahead and play that video, Julie. Thank you. January 19, 1994. Bishop Haik Hovzepian Mer, superintendent of the Iran Assemblies of God, is beaten and stabbed to death by secret police. Today, more than 100,000 believers live in Iran. January 17, 2008, 
Pastor Saheed William is shot to death in Peshawar, Pakistan by masked gunmen. Today, many others stand in his place as the gospel of Christ is taught in all corners of Pakistan. November 28, 2008, Pastor Beulah Setu is surrounded by Muslim radicals in a ditch in Jos, Nigeria. They cut off his arms and legs, put out his eyes, and set him on fire. Today, in northern Nigeria, where Setu evangelized among the Muslims, more than 100 churches stand. Three Christian leaders, all struck down for proclaiming the gospel of Christ. All struck down, but not destroyed. Reverend Setu was a dear friend of mine. He was very passionate about the Fire Bible. And he was our team leader for the House of Division of the Fire Bible. And his strongest desire was to see the Bible completed. That would never happen. Setu was struck down before he could ever hold a House of Fire Bible. Struck down, but not destroyed. Today, there are more than 10,000 House of Fire Bibles in print. But more importantly, the churches Reverend Setu started are growing and thriving. And the workers he trained continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible Alliance and the Fire Bible are a great testimony to the victories that God is doing in Nigeria. We've been able to translate it into three languages, the Hausa, the Yoruba, and the Igbo Fire Bibles. And we believe that this is a testimony of God's revival, God's greatness, and He is moving by the power of His Spirit. Although churches are struck down, they're not destroyed. These 16 fire Bibles represent several countries where believers are facing persecution for their faith. Eleven fire Bibles are already in print, and five are in production with funding pending. That means donors have committed the funds, but to this point, all funding on all of the Fire Bibles has not yet been received. In 2012, we urgently need to finish the funding for four more Fire Bibles for countries where believers are persecuted. The Khmer Fire Bible for Cambodia, the Lao Fire Bible for Laos, the Vietnamese Fire Bible for Vietnam, and a Fire Bible for a country that is too dangerous to mention by name. We need your help. The blood of many martyrs stains the soil of these nations. We know that other believers will be struck down. But the word of God will not be destroyed. I don't know, you know, how much a person can really take in those situations. But one thing I know, those people, they have stuck it out. And although they have been struck down, we know that they're not destroyed and they're not abandoned and God is really building His kingdom. This may be the most important year in the history of the Bible Alliance. Every Fire Bible costs just $10 to print, but its impact 
is eternal. These Bibles help persecuted believers spread the truth of His Word in their nation, even to the very ones who strike them down. Hundreds may be struck down this year, but the church will not be destroyed. So next Sunday, November 4th, across all of our campuses, here at our Echo Campus, at our Central Campus, and at Trinity and Lutherville, at our Spanish Campus, our Chinese Campus, all of our campuses, all four of the campuses that are in the Trinity Network, we're going to receive a one-day offering. We're going to pool all of that together. We're going to buy as many of those fire Bibles as we possibly can. My wife and I, we're participating in this. We're excited about this. It's a huge opportunity for us to get copies of the Bible, not just the Bible, but the Bible with these incredible study notes. These Bibles are jam-packed, filled in the, in the net. The, the national languages, everything that they would need to open up that Bible and just begin to learn and have God speak to them. It's not even just a page. It's the whole entire Bible, Genesis through Revelation. And uh, we're thrilled to be part of this. One of the ways that, one of the ways that we're uh, encouraging people just to think through um, is consider how many Bibles you personally own, whether they're in print or whether you have them on digital copies. And just consider, this is not a mandate, just, just consider making a gift to buy one Bible for every Bible you own. And my wife and I were up over like 30 Bibles, so, you know, it's, it, it's going to be a fun week for us next week. But we're excited about it. You know, there, there's, we really talked about it. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, if, if, if that's 30 people's lives and they pass it to one, two, three, four, five of them, you think about how many people's lives can be changed just by our willingness to be generous in our giving. So next Sunday, we're going to give you an opportunity to come together as a church, and we'll do that. We'll receive a special offering Next Sunday, I just want you to be prepared. Is this stuff making sense to you? The sow, grow, harvest, does it make sense to you? I think it's really easy to understand. It's a little more difficult sometimes to apply and always line up with. Um, but the good news is that we're all works in progress. And when we hear the word of God, we want to do something with it. So my encouragement to you is do something with this this week. Don't let it just be words that go into your ears and you forget about it till you're at home and the power goes out and the ice melts out and your ice cream is ruined. I'm just kidding. It's not going to happen to any of us today. It's going to be a good day. I love being with you guys. Have a great afternoon. God bless you. We'll see you on Sunday uh, for, for this special day about the fire Bibles. God bless you. Have a good week.